Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. See the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi. My name is Nathan Hobson, and I'm a host for the New Books in Japanese Studies podcast, a member of the New Books Network. Today, I'll be talking with Dr. Annika Culver about her book, Japan's Empire of Birds, Aristocrats, Anglo-Americans, and Transwar Ornithology, which is out from Bloomsbury Academic in 2022. Culver uses a previously unavailable archive of photographs as the jumping off point to follow the careers of Japanese ornithologists in the transwar generation as they navigate the complexities of their swiftly changing political circumstances. Japan's empire of birds brings out the tensions between aristocratic connoisseurship and elegance, scientific advancement, and intense interpersonal relationships on the one hand, and the ugly realities of imperial and military violence and race-based hierarchies on the other. To my mind, birds themselves embody such paradoxes and tensions. They are symbols of freedom, even as we trap them, train them as hunters and spies, stuff them, eat them. But yet they are also both nationalist symbols. Every country has a national bird, while migratory birds exist as transnational transgressors in a borderless world beyond human politics. These themes underlie Culver's exploration of networks of Japanese ornithologists and their mostly Anglo-American counterparts from the 1920s to the 1970s. All right, Dr. Culver, thank you and welcome to the podcast. So uh, we usually ask authors how they became interested in the research project, which led them to their book. Um, in, in your case, I want to change this up a little bit, though. I want to frame that sort of generic question a bit more specifically, if that's okay. So can you tell us about the sources that became the genesis of this project um, and about your relationship to them? Because it seems to me that's a really important part of the project. I hope I'm reading that right. Yeah, uh, thank you for your question. Um, it's a really circuitous way, really, that I, I came to this project. Uh, I had a friend at my previous uh, em- place of employment, and uh, she was actually a musicologist. And one day we were standing in line for commencement, 
And she asked me, well, what, what are you, what is, what do you do? What is your, your research subject? Cause you know, we were standing around and she was someone from some different department and we started to talk and this was Valerie Austin. Her father had been the conversational English partner of the former Japanese emperor. Well, he was the uh, actual emperor at the time, uh, Emperor Akihito. And so I said, well, wow, that's really interesting. And and so we started to talk and we became friends. And um, over a while, I got to know her father, Tony Austin, and he had this wonderful collection of slides from the time that his father was an occupational official in Japan from roughly 1946 to 1950. It was a remarkable collection of images that he first began to show in my Asian studies courses. And then um, we began to come up with this idea that really these should be shared with the world because uh, these collections are so rare. Japanese did not have color film during the last years of the war or even the beginning of the years of the war. They had to be imported by the Americans. And so um, Austin, being that he was a high-ranking official, interestingly enough, he was in charge of the Wildlife Bureau. Now, why this was so important uh, eventually becomes the genesis of the book. Uh, But kind of going fast forward back to these slides, um, eventually I got a job at Florida State University, and we had many more resources to actually digitize them. They were about a thousand color slides from this amazing collection of images from about four years of Austin's time in Japan. And the people that he photographed were just absolutely amazing. The access that he had to the Japanese elites, the Japanese aristocracy, uh, even members of the royal family, including the crown's prince at the time, um, former Emperor Akihito now, uh, was just uh, an, an incredible collection and of extreme value. And so I began to digitize these with uh, with students and interns. And over time, uh, we created this amazing website called the Oliver Austin Photographic Collection. And um, initially, I was going to write a book about him. And uh, then I thought, well, you know, there's too many biographies of of white men and scientists uh, who, you know, are from the United States or, or or England. Why don't I tell the other side of the story, right? I'm a Japan historian after all, right? I mean, who are these people, these faces that I had to learn who they were, right? Um, and then I found out how amazing and how layered the story was and, and how entangled Anglo-American relations were uh, with the Japanese from literally the middle of the 19th century onwards and still continues, right? I mean, uh, Japanese study in, in um, Oxford and Cambridge and, and Harvard and uh, Berkeley and, and elsewhere. Uh, so there's this extensive network of relationships uh, that have uh, really grown from, you know, Meiji times uh, into the present and unfortunately and very distressingly, um, less and less um, uh, Japanese are are coming to the United States or or England for a variety of of, of reasons. And so that cosmopolitanism in the past is is waning slightly. Um, And and here's why that's so important. And this becomes the core of my book, um, featuring those images of of, uh, largely men um, who appear in these photographs um, and were so important uh, to the occupation that General MacArthur, in fact, was uh, granted Oliver Austin one of only two 
uh, special commendations uh, from the commander himself <laughs> to a civilian official. Um, really? The head of the Wildlife Bureau? Um, how does that work? <laughs> Is wildlife really that important? Um, actually, it was birds. And it was because uh, Austin's uh, specialty, he was an ornithologist. Um, and uh, the mutual love of birds was what got all these men together. And interestingly enough, they uh, were active in the House of Peers, which is um, there's a bicameral lecture, uh, legislature in Japan, the National Diet. Um, yes, it was a, a, a functioning democracy uh, in pre-war times, uh, though they had their troubles. And as we head into the 1930s, it just gets worse and worse. Um, but, you know, uh, that sounds very similar to something we can be observing uh, elsewhere, right? Um, but anyway, to kind of go back to their story, um, they are all highly connected and members of the House of Peers, so they're able to push through legislation. And so these personal and very enduring contacts with this American um, allow them both to rehabilitate their careers, but also um, to effectuate this democracy that the Americans are, are trying to effectuate from top down. Um, and this access, this proximity to um, the imperial elites, I think is, is really important, um, even though... Um, you know, there's some irony, right, <laughs> that you're going to have an aristocracy helping to create a democracy. Uh, but um, it was also very important and increasing so uh, as Cold War um, uh, uh, interests uh, begin to suffuse, uh, particularly um, American relations uh, with um, with East Asia. Yeah. And thank you for uh, very clearly laying out both the provenance and the significance uh, of the materials and also doing it somehow without gloating about the fact that you basically had, you know, you stumbled upon the holy grail of, of primary sources, right? Like as a historian, I'm I'm, ex I'm extraordinarily jealous of just, you know, you sort of stumble across, across this incredible uh, collection and it becomes, you know, years and years of, of really interesting and significant work, uh, which becomes the book. Um, and so before we dive into the book, we've already, you've already begun to lay this out a little bit, um, but you're following uh, the careers of these Japanese ornithologists, uh, this trans-war generation. Uh, as they're navigating the complexities of the political circumstances of the time and as those circumstances are changing swiftly and often dramatically. Um, so this, this is a story for you, the way you're laying it out, uh, of science, of race, of empire, and Japan's shifting place in the world. One of the terms I think that we should probably uh, define before we jump into that is this term imperial masculinity, right? It's a, it's a term you in, introduce in the intro. Um, and how does that, what does that mean and how does it fit into this story? Yeah, um, it's really very fascinating because uh, Japan is literally the only non-white empire in the 19th century. It's a very young empire, uh, just like its neighbor, the United States. And I say the Japanese and the Americans are neighbors because of uh, Taiwan and the Philippines. Literally, the waters of those respective colonies touch. And so... Um, 
just like it was for the British, uh, there's a notion of um, enacting empire on the playing field. Um, this this goes back to um, a lot of theories of, of masculinity um, in um, kind of British historical thought. And uh, so the idea of um, physically going over space, exploring, the act of exploring, the act of seeing, claiming, naming, Right. Um, and it's it's tied in with this masculine notion of control, of controlling these lands that you set foot in, um, making part of the empire, defining the boundaries, um, part of uh, a mission that um, begins very, very early in the education of these young boys, both in, in Great Britain, but then also uh, in Japan. First, you have to learn that there is an emperor. You have to learn there's a sovereign. Um, and there's a particular set of um, kind of physical activities that they engage in. And, um, you know, even in Japan, bukatsu is like such a big thing. Like I was a junior high school teacher back as a, uh, a jet in the jet program a million years ago, right, in the late 90s. Um, and I mean, there's still remnants of this, right? Physical education um, and this idea of this, you know, healthy body, that your body is moving through space. And for these largely male explorers, actually, there were no female explorers. I'd like to know if there were any from Japan. <laughs> that would have been really fascinating. Uh, but they're moving through space. They're going to the colonies. Um, they're observing the land. They're naming the animals, right? And these taxonomies. Taxonomies are... Um, you try to find out which different groups the animals could be categorized in, like kingdom, a good King Philip comes over for dinner or something like that. I remembered in my old biology class, but kingdom phylum, uh, King Philip comes over for good spaghetti, something like that, right? But subspecies and species and genus and then subspecies, genus and species and subspecies. Um, I'm just uh, a little nervous, so I can't keep these track right now. But uh, the species, to find a new species is a big deal. Um, and this is something that um, helps them to assert their control also on the scientific playing field, right? Because um, they are very, very engaged in um, writing up their research in journals, like the AUK is the premier um, uh ornithological journal in the um the united states the ibis in in britain um and you know to be a part of these journals and to publish in english this linguistic ability to kind of basically um i also i, I also bring in barbara fuchs's idea of cultural mimesis where um in order to uh, gain access to social status, uh, colonized people would adopt the modes of behavior uh, and cultural norms of the colonizer um, in order to gain access to preferred spaces, etc. And uh, for the Japanese, right, the most powerful empire at the time was the British. Um, and then it, it begins to be supplanted by the role of the United States. And so Anglo-Americans and uh, interacting with them becomes very, very important, um, both as, a, um, as, a, as a, a kind of validation of their scientific endeavors, but also of, of um, their, their manhood. 
right? Um, and so imperial masculinity is a, is a form of, uh, of masculine identity that becomes deeply enwrapped in with their work as, cult- as imperial agents, um, as expanding the empire, as um, uh, highlighting the importance of the name of Japan um, as, as being an active player on that imperial playing field. Yeah, and I, I, this was. I'm really glad that you were able to to, to lay that out um, in detail there, because I think it, there, there's at, there's one level at which you know it's an extension uh, of the the sort of very old idea of you know sound mind and sound body, right? You do physical education, you do these physical activities, you're also intellectually you know uh, training and you know whatever, but it's it's placed in this very particular context of imperialism, and then layered on top of that is Japan's own rather peculiar role uh, in nineteenth, early twentieth, and then into mid twentieth, and then across the war, uh, uh, sort of imperial uh, and other kinds of uh, you know international um, culture. Uh, and so the, the the other thing that I wanted to um, touch on before we jump into the uh, chapters is, is sort of overall, uh, there's a little bit of a shift from zoology more generally to ornithology more specifically uh, before and after the war in the book. Um, and so this, this kind of, I was curious how it is that post-war ornithology um, and the, as, as you put it, the trans-war imperial continuities of that, um, how does that fit into to what you're interested in in this book? Um, at, at some level, like what's interesting about ornithology is also the, the part of the question here. I mean, birds are so multifaceted, right? I mean, they have an important symbolic value and they've always had an important symbolic value. Uh, In one of my chapters, I talk about bird keeping and the types of birds that were kept traditionally in Japan. And the idea of hearing bird song culturally is just such an important thing throughout. um, I mean, you uh, look at the the different... um, poetry traditions, right? And and the, the, the call of the pheasant, for example. And um, I have a colleague, Matthew McWinney at FSU, who's just written a really important article about uh, about Matsuo Basho and, and, and just like Basho and, and the call of the pheasant. And, and uh, um, so just there's this important, this kind of domestic uh, ubiquity of birds in even um, very ordinary homes in the Tokugawa era, um, but then also for the aristocrats, you had falconry. And in particular, um, high-ranking daimyo would have falcons and they would, uh, Morgan Patelka writes about this, where they would survey large portions of land and territory um, in the hunt for falcons, but also using these falcons to hunt uh, other birds, essentially. Um, you know, you would you'd, uh, use ducks, uh, you'd use them to hunt ducks and, and the imperial duck hunt uh, eventually becomes an important um, diplomatic tool in the 19th century to um, attract good positive relations with um, the British. Uh, and then later during the occupation, even they continue uh, with the Americans. So you have these kamoba which are essentially these places where uh, ducks are cultivated and you have duck blinds and then the falcon is used to kind of agitate them upwards. And um, there was a falconer uh, that literally worked for the, the shogunal lineages and uh, he, he retired um, right after, right after uh, the, um, the war um, during the occupation. But he wrote a wonderful book about this. 
um, practice. And, and so birds have like these, this long history of interaction with both commoners and elites in Japan, um, symbolic, but then also, um, during, uh, the time that I'm writing about, um, British and Americans, they have aviaries. And if you're a wealthy person, you are going to have, like, for example, as Dylan Ripley had, this is um, back in Connecticut, he was at Yale at the time, working with a Peabody Museum. Also later, you know, a spy with the OSS. And then later on, an ornithology helps him to spy. And, um, you know, this is James Bond stuff before James Bond was created. And uh, he had a duck pond and um, everyone was always boasting about the newest addition to their aviary. And the Japanese did this, especially the British did this. Um, and they would have zoos, like, for example, uh, Delacour, who was this French aristocrat at Clare. He had this world-renowned zoo. Obviously, it wasn't just birds, but his favorite was bird, was various types of, of rare, in particular, rare birds. Um, and so there's something about birds and their plumage and the fact that they could fly and um, the notion both of freedom and captivity and the oscillation between these extremes. Uh, but birds also offered innumerable um, opportunities to, uh, spread your name, <laughs> uh, and go into areas that were very difficult to go to, right? I mean, if you're going to go on a hunt of, for, uh, wild game, like big game, um, it's really hard to bring them back. Uh, birds, um, if you, if you shot them using a variety of weaponry, um, they could be brought back. They could be, uh, stuffed. You would skin them. Um, and then, at, at then eventually they would, uh, reach uh, the taxidermist. Um, and then you could, you could also have, um, this is if, if you wanted to bring them back dead, but, um, obviously you could have, uh, a retinue of people with you, usually native guides that would, uh, somehow, uh, net these birds and, and bring them with you. Uh, back to, um, unfortunately, a lot of these, these birds would die on the way and route uh, if they were on ships and the like. And um, so birds somehow had an allure, uh, which was um, much more resonant to these elites than um, like a mammal, for example, right? I mean, even though these were, were really, really um, important as as well but in particular japanese um, cultural traditions merge with um, uh, this uh, anglo-american tradition i guess of the wealthy elites keeping birds and and hunting in particular hunting was uh was a big deal right um and uh tallahassee is really close to all kinds of Whale plantations, which is actually where I, I learned how to shoot and learned about firearms for this project, which is actually kind of terrifying, <laughs> but but fun. Eventually, uh, once I got over the fear of, of holding something that could kill me if I did it wrong. Uh, but um, these quail plantations, uh, these itty bitty little birds, just a few ounces, like a handful of feather, literally feathers, literally. Um, millions of dollars would be spent every year to run one of these things. And basically, um, currently for uh, Southern and other Northern elites, uh, you'd own a hunting plantation for your business associates and you'd bring them down for a nice hunt. And um, essentially, uh, the Japanese did the same with their kamoba, with their... Um, duck ponds and the um, duck uh, feasts afterwards, um, the quail feasts here in the 
the South in Georgia and Northern Florida. Um, and it's it's like, a, obviously, for if you bring in foreigners, it's diplomacy. Um, if you're bringing in your business associates, it's a form of uh, entertain, corporate entertainment, which I believe they get all kinds of tax breaks for it. But I haven't I haven't uh, done any research, so I don't know. Um, but essentially, they were these spaces for uh, cordiality that allowed encounters to emerge that were much more personal. Um, surrounding these birds, right? The birds are a symbol. You could also ingest them. They literally become a part of your, your person through con- the act of consumption. And obviously drinking, right? You're going to be drinking when you're with uh, these individuals. And um, these very, very close relationships, I, I argue, were incredibly important, uh, in particular for the Japanese, and then their interactions with um, occupation officials. But even before that, um, for other other types of uh, foreigners, yeah, I hope I, I hope I'm not you know over reading the, the book when I say that you know so first of all you've you've sort of laid out how uh, uh, the various practices around birding whether that be uh, recreational, uh, social, um, or uh, scientific are also you know very much tied up in that first thing we talked about sort of imperial masculinity right about various and and how that shifts over time right it's different if you're dealing with occupation officials perhaps than if you're dealing with your scientific colleagues in the twenties but nevertheless it's part of that um, homosocial elite male culture of the folks who would be engaged in that project of imperial masculinity so on the one hand I think that's that's the part that that, that you've laid out there I also wonder. And, and I think I'm not, like I said, I think I'm not overreading this, but I'd love if you could confirm it, that, you know, at some level, there is that imperial project of, right, um, of being yertled eternal, right? I'm the master of all that I see, right? I, I categorize the birds, I put them in, I put them in my conservatory, I put them in my zoo, I stuff them here, I categorize them there, I give them new, in the new genus a name. But there's also, I think, that project of, um, that, that sort of interesting uh, fact for birds, that they're both you can have both sort of national birds and you can have international birds. The sort of migratory politics of birds turns out to be quite important, I think, to the way that your book plays out. It is, so I hope we'll get to that. And I also hope I'm not overreading it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, okay. absolutely. I mean, in, in the post-war period, that's that's crucial, right? And um, in these kind of joint Russian projects on bird banding, I mean, really, really interesting in the 1950s and 60s. And then it intersects with Dylan Ripley's projects and, you know, uh, the Smithsonian. And then there's allegations with MKUltra, or at least they say that they're not in any way involved with that. Um, And uh, so a lot of interesting conspiracy theory aspects to to birds and, you know, Cold War projects. Um, But ultimately, as I argue, birds allowed people to come together of all different uh, political backgrounds uh, through this kind of common interest and common fascination. Of course, um, uh, this kind of is jumping a little bit to the end, uh, but um, conservation later on becomes a way for Japan to rebrand itself and to reemerge on the world stage as kind of a leader in, in particular, protecting birds, right, who uh, 
through their migrations. They brook no borders. They're completely transnational. Um, and interestingly enough, they're sort of a symbol of these aristocratic elites, the way they were and the way they want to be. And um, I mean, I was a Fulbrighter back in t- uh, 204 to 205. And I remember we were always being invited to these parties. And I talked to these you know, mostly men at the time um, who were engaged in making policies. And some of the stories I heard were just really, really incredible. And um, so kind of to to make a long story short is that um, this kind of internationalness, this cosmopolitan identity of um, being very, very global uh, people, but also being influential in your own country. I, I think it uh, there's that generation of of, of Japanese uh, that um, I'm a little bit worried about because of obviously the coronavirus uh, pandemic kind of stopped a lot of that international exchange. Hopefully uh, that can t- continue. But I mean, I'm just amazed at at um, how much interaction there was uh, in the past that kind of had us breakage. Um, because of the war, but also even during the war, <laughs> strangely enough, continued somehow, uh, and then um, revived in the post-war period. Um, and um, so I, I think, and in, in because of the U.S.-Japan alliance, um, much of these close relationships, I think, are, are very, very important, these connections between U.S. and Japanese policymakers. Um, now they're obviously not connecting about birds. It's other ways that they're connecting North Korea and fear of China, um, because most of them tend to be quite uh, quite conservative in their political orientations. Um, but, you know, there, there are other kind of sports ways that they, um, they interact. And um, so... That'll be interesting to to look at. Well, what are you know kind of common themes now, right? If it's not birds, then what 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 are they connecting with? Yeah, so we've uh, we've had a James Bond reference and an MK Ultra reference, and we haven't even gotten to the chapters yet. So I think we should probably go ahead and do that. Um, so the uh, the book is eight chapters, um, and I think that they're nicely linked: uh, one and two, three and four, five and six, seven and eight. They're not officially sort of parts of the book if you look at the table of contents, but I think it's fair to treat them that way um, in terms of you know, talking, talking uh, between us for, for the audience here. So first I want to jump into uh, chapters one and two. So chapter one is the practice of ornithology, uh, birds, hunting, and social class in pre-war Japan and the Anglo-American world. And chapter two is Western villas in aristocratic hands, spaces of imperial mimesis and informal scientific exchange. So you've begun to touch on some of uh, what's important here, uh, but it seems to me that the big theme in these chapters is that idea of imperial mimesis. Um, And you note that uh, zoology slash ornithology carried with it uh, not just a sort of habitus that we've been talking about, that sort of imperial masculinity, uh, a sort of sense of oneself as a cosmopolitan elite, um, but also a mass of social and political entanglements, right? Both for better and for worse, I suppose. Uh, And this just you described this in a way that I thought was quite fascinating, right? As increasingly intimate interactions between like-minded men, I just thought that was a fascinating way to describe what's going on um, and the ways that their relationships uh, cross these private 
public lines and, and play out in the international hierarchies of the imperial age. Uh, is there anything that we haven't talked about from these two chapters that we need to understand in order to set up the rest of the book? Well, um, also, I think the spaces that these interactions occurred in, which I'm absolutely fascinated by, I, I love going into interiors and, and homes and uh, like, for example, Prince Asaka's villa, you can still go there. It's uh, uh, the Tian uh, and gardens and it's this museum right now. Uh, but Essentially, uh, Prince Asaka was the one who laid down the order to attack Nanjing and, and um, the brutality of Nanjing, uh, that uh, great massacre in 1937. Um, essentially, uh, it's it's because of, of his, his order. And so you kind of have this in the back of your mind when you go into this beautiful Art Deco villa, which was based on um, a exhibition that he saw in Paris with his wife when he was overseas in the 1920s with the Lalique fountain and everything. And um, so these were the interiors where these interactions took took place. Um, I just give his villa as an example because it's still standing. Unfortunately, the, the Hachiska estate is not. Uh, the Australian embassy is now perched in its garden. You can still see its garden. And um, it was this beautiful British style uh, home. And um, obviously, there was also a Japanese uh, addition to it. Both of these had bifurcated spaces. One was for entertaining of, of, of guests, um, which could include foreigners um, and uh, people very important for um, political reasons. Um, and so these spaces, these interiors would be a place where you could showcase your treasures and these treasures could be tea bowls from the Song Dynasty, from China that had been passed down from your ancestors, uh, but they could also be rare bird specimens. And so the act of um, unveiling of both, for example, the tea bowls, which you might even offer a tea ceremony to your guests, but then you would go to uh, the, a Japanese room or you'd go next door into the Japanese home. Uh, that was on your property, or you had a tea house. And so the act of unveiling these uh, was a very an intimate experience, right? Including the birds, the bird specimens, they were kept in Polonia drawers to prevent them from, from uh, molding. And um, you would lay these out and just the act of seeing these items, which probably were not... Uh, displayed in a case or anything, but they were kept uh, very carefully sealed. Um, and there's an interesting, uh, Iege Corner talks about Emperor Hirohito talking about this durian. And so he leans over the table and goes closer and closer and closer to Corner, even though he's the, the emperor and he forgets his role as emperor and they forget their status because they're so interested in what they're seeing. And so they briefly shed these notions of place and status to engage in with these material objects. I mean, this is how I'm, I'm seeing this. And um, it allows them also to speak more freely on other topics, right? Um, and um, in the context of England and even in the United States, right, I mean, there are also personal relationships that emerge, right? Um, I mean, I, I don't, it's, it's very hard to do queer history because if you don't have a smoking gun, you don't have letters, even letters were policed in the United States, of course. 
right? Um, and so you're, you're not going to say anything very explicit. But for example, Jean de la Cour, he was a confirmed bachelor, for example, um, and he was very interested in Hachiska Masoji. Um, again, I could not find any letters of Delacour in his art in his archives, so I don't know if they were taken out eventually by um, over the years or if they had been lost. Uh, but um, it, you know, uh, so I don't know. Um, but uh, Ezra Warren, for example, um, he uh, he was known to. Um, you know, uh, also have a very close relationship with uh, Delacour, and um, Delacour talks about the bird cages in his bedroom. I mean, why would you be admitted to the bedchamber and and um, be delight in bird song there? <laughs> so, um, but you know, regardless of of the truth or uh, the most important thing is is that um, these objects, these creatures, right preferred opportunities for very close relationships, um, very um, intimate settings where you forgot the constraints and even shackles of duty, of imperial duty, of, of political duty. Um, and then there's also the Pokemon notion, right? Of gotta collect them all, right? I have this specimen and then everybody is just oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And then the tension is building. The excitement is is building until you can see it. And um, I'm assuming that they, uh, I don't know if they're actually touching it with their bare hands or if they um, are offered um, special uh, gloves to, um, you know, touch the birds and everything. Some of their feathers can be very fragile, et cetera. Um, and we're talking about bird skins, right? Um, sometimes they're taxidermied, but uh, for example, uh, Kuroda uh, Nagamichi, um, he always brought out these sheldrake ducks, um, which are incredibly rare. Uh, they're probably extinct, but nobody really knows because their range is in Manchuria, uh, Northeast China, um, and in North Korea. So um, the North Koreans have uh, indicated sightings of these particular ducks, but um, again, it's it, it it cannot be scientifically confirmed, uh, right? Because sharing of scientific information is is not as upfront <laughs> in that area. So again, we come into international relations, right? Um, and so the unveiling of these specimens, um, the uh, consumption, the ocular consumption of the material object, um, and the excitement that the and the emotional intensity that is gained while in their present uh, makes them almost transcendent in a way, right? Um, and the same with the tea ceremony, right? The tea ceremony for the, the, um, the, the Bushi elites, the samurai elites that Morgan Patelka talks about. Um, the, the falconry also has some aspects of that, right? Um, it was really interesting. I, I, it was hard for me to understand, but then, you know, I, I relied on my cousin who lives on this, um, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but he lives on um, my uncle's hunting lodge in Germany. Um, and it's this very, very interesting building, partially underground. I suspect it might have had a use as a bunker or something because it was built in the 1930s. And um, he uh, is part of, um, he conserve, helps conserve this forest. But, you know, he's kind of a hippie. So um, he uh, 
cultivates racing pigeons, which uh, there's a whole cult of the racing pigeon in Europe, and they sell for thousands of dollars. Uh, he eats the less spectacular members of his flock for dinner, <laughs> and then lets the other ones uh, breed. And um, so, again, he has these aviaries. He also breeds these different chickens for their, their plumage. Uh, and whenever he needs to pay the taxes, he sells portions of his deer herd. <laughs> um, and so he has, I guess, the, the only job he really had at some point when he was younger, he's uh, elderly now, but he was a taxidermist. And so um, he told me about what it was like to taxidermy birds and the old process. And um, he showed me a picture of... Um, Oh my goodness, it's a wachtel. I don't know what that is. And it's a type of a hawk or a raptor in, in uh, you know, in Germany. And um, they're the, the little feathers of all the, all the, the little quail that it, it caught and the other birds that it, it had caught. And then there's this photograph uh, of that bird with all these little feathers around it, almost like enshrining this bird. The bird has its own personality. Um, Helen McDonald's H is for Hawk. You get this idea of the allure of, of the bird where she almost becomes enslaved to this magnificent uh, creature that she's uh, taking care of in the wake of the death of her father. Um, and, and so it's this kind of ultimate fascination obsession, in fact, that um, these men have with birds, arguably my, my cousin as well with, um, with his pigeons. <laughs> Um, which apparently are very successful in, um, at least in the past, because I think he's just kind of retired right now. But um, I mean, all of this was really fascinating. And, and for me, I like to do experimental, experimental anthropology, which means going into these spaces, if I can, doing it, <laughs> uh, i.e. Um, skinning the birds and seeing what that is like, uh, eating their, their flesh. Uh, this happened with, uh, with uh, a pair of doves that had been shot by a friend of ours. And, um, you know, just as close as I could come to, to the subject, which um, most historians are just kind of caught in the archives and they nothing wrong with that. But, um, you know, uh, it's, it's a little different experience than being in a, in a library, for example, or um, uh, the archive, uh, the, the traditional archive, I must say. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. This episode is brought to you by Jinx, the superfood-powered dog kibble everyone's been talking about. 
see the results for yourself and try their one-month transformation. Within the first few weeks, you'll see how Jinx can help with your dog's energy, mood, and even digestion. And it's all thanks to the high-quality ingredients they use, like organic chicken, Atlantic salmon, and grass-fed beef. Try the one-month transformation today. Find Jinx in your local Walmart. Yeah, um, I, that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, point that you make about the being able to uh, experience uh, in some way what the uh, protagonists of your story were uh, thinking and feeling, right? By sort of t- trying to to uh, get into that world, right? Because you do you sort of start from those photographs and you start from the traditional archive, um, but you're able to to jump into that. Um, in that in that answer, you mentioned uh, the protagonist, in fact, of the next two chapters. Uh, that's chapters three and four, uh, Cambridge, UK, nineteen twenty five to nineteen twenty nine, and the Philippines, nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty one. Um, and this is about uh, uh, Hachiska Masauji, who in uh, chapter three is described as the scandalous marquee, uh, and he's uh, and he's he's uh, the as I said the protagonist of these two chapters. So chapter three spotlights his time in Cambridge, and that's twenty five to twenty nine. Um, as scandalous marquee uh, suggests, he was quite a colorful figure. Uh, tell us about him uh, and about the ways that he negotiated uh, the complex identity politics of being uh, Japanese in Cambridge. Um, and being, you know, on the one hand, Japanese, on the other hand, a rich and well-connected noble, on the one hand, Japanese, on the other hand, in Cambridge, and, you know, being uh, at the heart of the empire while you're part of your own growing empire, your non-white and white-dominated spaces. And at the same time, he's also this, you know, internationally recognized scientist. And so it seems like his life at Cambridge must have been quite complicated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting because uh, when I started the research on him, um, I was invited to Cambridge uh, to give a talk um, by Barack Kushner. Um, and uh, this was essentially about the Austin collection, right? The slides and um, doing um, history with um, sort of non-traditional sources, right? I mean, how, what do the photographs, what do the images tell us? And uh, so I was there to do that. Uh, but then I, I stayed longer and was able to to use the library and set foot in some of the same spaces that uh, many of um, the Japanese elites uh, had set foot in. And it was also Cambridge is also where um, Ro- Lionel Walter Rothschild went uh, to school and um he was one of the mentors to uh, Hachiska Machauji. And I think now we would probably say that Rothschild, uh, you know, he was probably an Aspie, right? He probably uh, had what we now consider uh, being on the spectrum or Asperger syndrome because he really hated working for the bank that he had to work for, for the Rothschild family, this fabulously wealthy Jewish aristocratic family in England. And his great love was birds. And so uh, Tring was his estate where he had all kinds of exotic animals. His carriage was pulled by zebras, which was believed to never be able to be done. But he mastered the domestication of these wild creatures. And and so enter Hachiska. And um, he also encountered Ernst Hartert there. And they went on an expedition together in the mid-20s. And um, to make a long story short, he didn't attend many classes. (laughs) 
And uh, so this association with Cambridge was really his way to foster connections and to work with people on campus, uh, notable zoologists, uh, but also um, to... to uh, Essentially, he didn't come to study zoology or ornithology. He was supposed to go to the University of London and study something sensible like economics, right? Um, and um, or and something related to politics, right? He was going to accede to the House of Peers eventually, and um, he just fell in love with uh, with birds and ornithology and um, learning about all of these taxonomies. Um, this obsession with lineage obviously is nothing new, right? With the aristocracy and the British and the, you know, Japanese were, were also very intrigued by it. And um, he unfortunately encounters a lot of roadblocks. And I'm thinking maybe this had something to do with um, why he um, has a essentially blank matriculation card. Uh, he never seems to have sat for any of the exams, and um, I'm wondering if this had anything to do with uh, with racism, um, his souring of his relationship with Herbert Giles, who was the professor of Chinese at the time. Uh, Cambridge had a stipulation where um, in order to, to get the degree, you had to take classical languages, Latin and, and, and Greek and the like. And so um, Herbert Giles actually was very supportive of adding classical Chinese. Now, um, what's really, really interesting is, is that Chinese and Japanese, they, they learn the classics very differently. And obviously, uh, in Japan, right, you have to go through this complicated process when you are reading Kanbun of translating it into your grammar, which um, I, I, I could never master that. So I'm like, well, I'm just going to, you know... Uh, through the lens of my knowledge of Chinese, I'm going to just read it in the original Chinese and forget the grammar. But uh, some of those grammatical changes could also arguably uh, change meaning. Um, and I think that these nuances, Giles didn't understand it. He was uh, very against the Japanese, um, in particular, um, the 21 demands. And, and he was close to the Chinese community. He said some terribly racist things about about Japanese um, in, in his own uh, writing. Um, he was going to publish a bestiary, a medieval bestiary, um, with um, finance, in fact, by Hachiska Masauji, whose family was fabulously wealthy. Um, and Giles, unfortunately, despite his position, um, he also had a bit of a problem with PR. He was a, seemed to have been a very sour man who uh, got into all kinds of fights here and there. And um, so he didn't have the cash to put this through. And so um, Hachiska, being a young man in his 20s, um, but with lots of money, but still trying to build his reputation, whereas Giles was, was a well-known, famous uh, figure in, in uh, Chinese um, classical studies and the like, had been a former diplomat in China. And um, so things must have, must have soured, and, and he wrote merde on the, on the um, actual document. I'm like, wow. <laughs> and then it says, is this the guy that, that you know, uh, fabulously... Um, uh, flunked the test, or I'm, I'm just paraphrasing right now, but um, essentially uh, Giles made the test, and I think he made it purposely hard 
for uh, Masoji to take. And um, even though in his own writings, Giles himself was saying he often took liberties in translation. <laughs> so I don't think that was particularly fair. So um, to make a long story short, Masoji did not pass the Chinese test. And I think that was one of the hurdles that, um, you know, but he did perpetuate the, the Cambridge name by putting um, his family crest on one of the donated arches in Selwyn College. And um, it's called the Selwyn Swastika because that's what it is. The Hachiska family crest is a swastika. And so this became kind of an issue during World War II and afterwards where people mistook it for some kind of support for the Nazis, which it wasn't true. I mean, it's an ancient Buddhist symbol um, and it, it shows uh, perhaps their past connection with um, with a particular line of, of temples and, and, and so on. Um, and uh, so he was able to, through his money, um, perpetuate his, his name, but at least in terms of um, actual real tangible degrees, uh, that was not uh, that was not the, the case. So for him, it was an oscillation between acceptance by certain communities, rejection by others, um, and compounded by the fact that he was a very, he seemed to be a very, very confident young man, um, very short, as many Japanese were at the time in pre-war times, uh, probably no more than five foot one or so. Um, his uh, his daughter mentioned that you know she tried to put on his uniforms once and they didn't even fit her, and, and she's quite petite. And uh, so um, you can kind of imagine the um, encounter with this very petite, I guess, I can't say petite as a young man, but, um, you, you know, you get my point, um, but just absolutely brilliant, who was very fluent in English and later in French and um, just really remarkable. And, and the fact that he went on these safaris and expeditions and, and he's only in his 20s and boldly publishing in uh, some of the leading scientific journals to establish his reputation. I mean, it's, it's just absolutely, it's absolutely remarkable. I mean, you know, we, ha we have uh, examples of um, foreign scholars doing the same thing nowadays, but it's much more widespread, right? Um, Cambridge had a, a horrible reputation of, of uh, being quite insular uh, towards the so-called colonials, right? I mean, Egyptians and, and others uh, were, did not have the same kind of honorary whiteness as the Japanese did. Uh, Emperor Hirohito, in fact, visited in 1921. Uh, he and Masauji had a wonderful time together, and, and Hirohito, after that date, just began to eat an English breakfast for every single morning meal, um, enjoyed his time in England. And um, so for, for him, it was like being a bird sprung from a cage. Literally, that's a, that's a, a quote from him. And um, so for the emperor, it was a, a respite from his duties and, and the distance and formality of Japan. Whereas for Masaoji, it was a little bit more different, a little bit more difficult because he actually lived there. And he, he was in a kind of a precarious position, not quite white, obviously, um, and still having to navigate, navigate the um, intellectual environment of uh, literally one of the the best uh, universities besides Oxford of in in uh, in England and, and of course in, in the world. And so the next chapter 
fills out sort of the the opposite side of this uh, essentially this honorary whiteness uh, and and position that uh, Hachiska has as a an elite noble Japanese because after uh, after the UK um, he ends up in the Philippines um, and you know as as he's he's this kind of metonym for Japan's position that's been carved out in the world right um, so what was his experience like in the Philippines um, and how does it illustrate uh, for example the connections between ornithology and colonial control which you observe in the book and have also talked about a little bit here, still haunts ornithology today. Yeah, I mean, to speak directly to that, uh, Subic Bay uh, has this kind of old American military base, which now has become like a haven for birds and bird conservation and birders just love to go there. Uh, The Philippines has been, and I probably, I think still is, the holy grail of bird exploration for any ornithologist just because of species diversity there. And uh, at the time when Hachiska went there, it was also a kind of a contested ground for the Americans and the Japanese. The Japanese were almost dominating the trade in abaca, which is a rope cordage um, plant uh, that's essential for uh, riggings in a ship and, and, and just ropes in general. Um, and so this was becoming a problem with uh, international relations between the U.S. and Japan already. Uh, in Mindanao, um, that was where there was a huge community of Japanese. Uh, later on, they call it Davaogua, like Manjogua, Manchukuo, uh, because of the large Japanese commercial presence. So he's coming in there almost as an imperial agent, arguably as an imperial agent. Um, he has his own uh, collector that um, Nakamura Yoshio, who is a former member of um, the Kanto Army, uh, which was, you know, the the Japanese military force uh, helping to patrol the South Manchurian Railroad lines in, in um, first uh, Northeast China. And then, of course, they were the ones who helped to, um, well, they essentially engineered the plot to take over Northeast China and invaded Manchuria in 1931. So, um you know, he's he's involved in this kind of symbolic operation where um, he's also the first to completely traverse Mount Apple, right? I mean, a lot of people went to the summit and went back, but he's going over the summit and then going the other way, which nobody had done before. Um, there was a team of Americans with their Filipino counterparts that came in in 1928. And then there was also a Japanese group that had put up um, one of those uh, markers. But for Hachiska, he wanted to get to the highest peak and put his name on there. So Hachiska carved in katakana, arguably with a bolo knife that took many hours to do. I don't think he was himself doing it. I think one of the uh, indigenous guides was doing that for him. And um, he and his, his group toast to the emperor, his cousin, uh, when they are up on the top. And so it's an act of imperial claiming and naming, right? And he's not doing it in English. He's doing it in Japanese, in katakana. And so I think that's a really significant act of of empire. And the Philippines are very much next to Taiwan as they touch waters. And some of the Igorots uh, and other indigenous peoples have cultures very similar to those uh, indigenous peoples of Taiwan, which is under Japanese control. Right. Um, and um, so 
it's it's a kind of a well, I mean, we call them colonial contact zones, but it's so much more so than that, right? Because the Philippines, right? I mean, we all talk about the attack on Pearl Harbor is starting the war for the United States, but there's also a simultaneous attack on Manila. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) Um, And it's because of this large widespread commercial Japanese presence and American plantations um, that uh, supply a variety of of, of products, Um, but also Hachiska's there and, and he meets uh, the the people and the, the Filipino children who are supposedly educated in these plantation schools and their health conditions are terrible. So he and his team extend their compassion to these children and tend to, um, they have all kinds of parasites, et cetera, wounds that are not healing because of the tropical nature of their environment, et cetera, um, which also points to their poor nutrition, right? I mean, they wouldn't be having these problems had they been um, on a, a nutritious diet. And and so um, the fact that they're Japanese, that they're extending greater care than the alleged American caretakers of the area is significant. Um, and the photographs too, I think it's very f- interesting how he's situating himself and, and he's welcomed into the homes of people who are Scottish, who are American, who are Filipino. He transcends all of these communities. Of course, he's always with the elites, but then he's also with the indigenous elites, interestingly enough, and somehow is able to get closer to them than, you know, the white conquerors, (laughs) essentially. Um, Even though he misunderstands their traditions and their customs, as, you know, still happens, right, Uh, with outsiders encountering uh, indigenous and native cultures. So, um, he's he's in a liminal space, a liminal position as a non-white uh, imperial agent, and and this is arguably as well what's what's going to be happening um, as the Japanese come in and, and conquer areas during World War II. Uh, they, on one hand, it's it's very a very difficult situation, right? I mean, unfortunately, the brutality of the Japanese precludes them from having any kind of alternative to the previous successful alternative to the, the previous, uh, previous rulers. I mean, that's another topic I'm not going to go into, but um, there's certainly some contestation even at this point in the late twenties and early thirties for who's the better steward of these lands. But then this mentality, right. That the Japanese are thinking of themselves as stewards already uh, is, is interesting. Yeah, and you've foreshadowed uh, where the next two chapters take us, and that is uh, Manchuria, specifically the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo. Um, and we're really now talking about the what's sometimes called the 15 Years' War in Japan, right? Starting uh, 1931-ish, going all the way to 1945. Uh, so this is chapter five, Manchukuo and the Japanese Empire, 1932 to 40. And then uh, wartime Tokyo and defeat uh, 37 to 45. So here you show how uh, scientists are first um, in in chapter five uh, engaged in avian imperialism in this context of the new Manchurian state, Manchukuo. Uh, And you show that these scientists were involved in both the militarist imperialism and also the modernist experimentation that was that Japanese suzerain, that Japanese puppet state. 
Um, what does avian imperialism really mean in this context? I mean, like specifically, what is it that they were doing? Um, and if if there was anything, what was sort of special or particular about how that played out in Manchuria as opposed to somewhere else? Yeah, um, really, really excellent question. Um, there was a um, professor of geology from Waseda called Tokunaga Shigeyasu, and in 1933, he essentially carried out the first state-funded expedition uh, to Manchukuo. And um, all kinds of troops went with him, about uh, dozens of scientists to categorize the natural life of uh, that region, especially of, uh, they call it um, it's kind of the south um, southwestern portion, which uh, where the Japanese had already had pretty much of a toehold through their um, their uh, colony in Dairin. And um, so this act of naming and claiming with Kanto army detail, allegedly because of protection against bandits, even though uh, so-called harassment by Chinese was almost non-existent, right? Um, but it was an act of, of imperial claiming and imperial control. And even there's a wonderful image in my book of, of um, Tokunaga in his pith helmet. I'm thinking, wow, you know? <laughs> Uh, it's like you you think of Americans and 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 the British in their pith helmets, and and here we have a Japanese. It's just absolutely remarkable. And then you you've got kind of the precursor of the World War II uniforms on the in the Kanto army that's accompanying them. It's just this really amazing juxtaposition. And um, the ornithologists themselves uh, they um, were active in producing a zoology volume. And so um, this is kind of the leading cast of, of characters, including uh, Hachiska, but also um, Takatsukasa um, and others um, who were uh, writing um, a volume on, on birds. Uh, so they were part of this act of naming and claiming overseas. Um, but also, interestingly enough, many of the Japanese um, had shares, the Japanese aristocracy had shares in the South Manchurian railway company, right, including the imperial family. And so they're very deeply invested in many ways, uh, both monetarily, but also um, in terms of imperial power in the region and the success of this experiment. Uh, the Kanto army also had its own aviaries for uh, pigeons called pigeonries, um, which were essentially drones for surveillance purposes. You could easily use pigeons to surveil populations because they're virtually undetectable at the time. They um, would have a pigeon camera perched upon them. And in the Japanese military, there was actually a squadron of these uh, pigeons that could be released to obtain data. Um, even the, the CIA later on becomes interested in the use of pigeons during the Cold War. There's a wonderful article and um, allegedly... Um, they were used in several Cold War theaters, but uh, the organization doesn't um, is not allowed to still disclose when. Maybe Freedom of Information Act. Somebody can go into the archives and request, as long as it's been over fifty years, to find out where they were deployed. Uh, but um, birds provide this really interesting view into the control of the new state by the Japanese, right? 
uh, this kind of utopian space that they they fashion for this political experiment called Manchukuo, which unfortunately fails because they are not able to deploy the assets of the largest population there, which is the Chinese, um, and really get them on board because, you know, the Chinese aren't controlling it. I mean, yeah, you're going to collaborate if you're a wealthy elite Chinese family because you want to maintain some form of status and control. Um, and that's a whole different other topic. But um, the idea of um, birds also being a way to um, deeply investigate a society is really fascinating. Like, for example, in Tokyo in the 1940s, actually in the year of the outbreak of the Pacific War, 1941, the, the Shigen Kakaku Kenkyujo, or the Natural Resources uh, Research uh, Institute uh, in Tokyo was was created um, again by these um, these aristocrats and these elites um, in order to kind of observe what was going on uh, in these areas that had come under Japanese military control to find out what resources were there and um, at first I was at a loss uh, because of the pandemic I couldn't go back to Japan. And then I found out everything is detailed in the papers. Asahi Shimbu is the most amazing, magical resource for anyone who wants to find out about anything in Japanese history because it's there. Um, they weren't hiding anything. Um, always there were parties and send-offs for different teams, where they went, who they were, what they were doing. Um, and... Um, so um, many of these individuals, uh, they went uh, to to China and um, talked about the bird life that they observed in different cities. Um, it's also a wonderful way to gain intelligence information, I argue. Um, I found out later on in August uh, in um, Hachiska's archive that, uh, in fact, he went to Shanghai in 1941, because there's also um, a research institute very similar to the one, actually, I, I'm not sure if it was 41, it may have been la- a little later, 42 or so, uh, that, that he went to Shanghai and there was a um, research institute set up very much like the one in, in Tokyo. Um, and um, he went to some high level meetings with Japanese authorities there. Um, but the birds, um, during times of war, they also become a cover for intelligence uh, activities and surveillance. And, um, of course, uh, the Americans are also involved in that with uh, with bird banding initiatives. And um, it allows uh, scientists to get together and exchange information. The Japanese also go to Russia in the 1960s through for ornithological reasons, right? Um, I'm sure when they come back, they describe the conditions in Moscow and the like of the people that they met. So um, we see kind of the the beginnings, but I mean, it's always been the case, right? Um, even even uh, with falconry for the um, the daimyo and and their retainers. Yeah, that's interesting, and I, I think you know, as I have a daughter who is a, a an aficionado of the birds aren't real, uh, you know, satirical conspiracy theory. So uh, I, I I will have to tell her all about the CIA. Maybe she'll file that uh, FOIA request for us. Um, so you've you've talked a little bit about uh, 
you know the 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 way that the the war effort is ramping up and the increasing involvement of uh, Japanese scientists in not just military adjacent but you know military and intelligence operations and and, and I think it goes without saying that scientists in Japan like their colleagues everywhere um, become increasingly entangled in war efforts generally and also specifically World War II um, and this is the, really the topic you drilled down on in uh, chapter six was there anything specific that uh, they contributed, was there a specific way that they contributed beyond the the sort of issues of intelligence that you've brought up already? Well, um, again, I, I didn't find a smoking gun with Kuroda Nagahisa, but um, I basically have a very strong educated guess about what he was working on for the, the Japanese army during World War II, because like literally there are no records. But uh, for historians, uh, no records is also very telling, right? Um, and um, interestingly enough, my uh, son went to preschool at um, Toyama Yotien, which is a, a Christian preschool. Interestingly enough, the history is that uh, General MacArthur had the occupation build a church on the top of that hill. And here's why because that was also the site of the Army Medical College, where um, very horrific experiments were carried out. And later on in the 1980s, they found uh, the results of that in excavations uh, while they were building apartments. And um, so interestingly enough, remnants of that hall remain in the basement of that preschool. And it's actually now the the pastor's office. And... um, I remember that the preschool teachers would say, don't go down there. It's haunted. Probably is. (laughs) Um, And in the basement, there was actually a special room for Emperor Hirohito because he was very, very keen on understanding the progress that was being made in a biological weapons research, right? Uh, because that was deployed as as or uh, as a as a means to gain an advantage in the war. I mean, the Americans were involved in the research, and so were, of course, uh, the Germans. And um, in this little room, there's a very beautiful ceiling, beautiful ornate ceiling, um, and it's raised above the 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 ground, um, and you have to step up to get in there. Now they use it as like this kind of storage room, but. Um, I kind of asked about that. And then um, someone told me that this is where the emperor stayed. And interestingly enough, it was right next to, um, you know, this army medical college. And then um, the Institute for Infectious Diseases is also very, very close. Um, But that all, I guess, uh, many of those buildings had been torn down. So the only remnant was kind of left in this basement. Um, you can tell because there, there are these stone walls for um, one portion of uh, the side of the church. <laughs> That's also adjacent to the preschool. So it's a really kind of odd building that I always wondered about. And then I found out about its actual provenance. So it was the hall of the Army Medical College, um, where you know people had met and given lectures and and, and the like, and, and it was just so hard to destroy because of its um, the the stone involved in uh, the construction, and uh, so literally on top of it you have uh, this church to kind of sanitize the place. But anyway, Kuroda Nagahisa most likely worked there, um, and here's why: because the occupation 
um, hired him on <laughs> later on to uh, to harvest blood from from birds, and uh, it was sent away later to an undisclosed location, which he later found out was Fort Detrick, Maryland, where uh, in um, the 1950s and beyond, uh, the Americans were conducting virology and virology research and, and so on and so forth. Um, interestingly enough, a lot of this is reported in the AUK, and the AUK is a wonderful forum for uh, the use of obituaries to roast the deceased scientist. <laughs> the craziest things emerge in their obituaries, really. And um, this one happened to be for H. Elliot McClure, who uh, was um, working on Japanese encephalitis at the time, which also happened to be an interest during uh, the war and earlier of Ishii Shiro, who was the head of Unit 731. <laughs> and um, so that research had been of immense importance to the Americans, um, increasingly so during the Cold War because of the fear of the Russians and the fear of uh, Soviet bioweapons um, experimentation and potential use in, in, in warfare. So the Americans themselves were tr attempting to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm putting this nicely, right? I mean, it's something that I, I didn't want to delve into deeply because that wasn't necessarily my, my focus at the time. Um, but the fact that these connections exist, right. And they're using their expertise during the war and then, um, uh, working with the, um, Americans. So here's how it goes. Um, with McClure and, um, another associate, Kuroda, was hunting birds, and later they found it was better to um, trap them because uh, through the act of shooting, you could damage the blood sample. Uh, so you take blood samples, um, and in birds are notorious carriers of viruses, right? We, we've seen this with the avian flu epidemic and all that, right? Um, and the coronavirus is uh, a mammalian virus. It's from a bat, right? But it also flies. So um, any of these viruses that are in flying creatures have the potential to infect undetectedly large populations and weaken them. Uh, so there's this is why there's a Cold War interest in that, right? I mean, um, the Americans and the Soviets. And um, and uh, so to obtain these samples, you could get new viruses. And then in the context of a laboratory, you could see uh, how virulent they were and perhaps even increase their virulence and then put it into a type of form that would become weaponizable. And so for me, like to do this research during the coronavirus epidemic, uh, the way that my mind was working, I was thinking of all kinds of conspiracy theories. And my son was at UF at the time, University of Florida, studying microbiology just by happenstance. Um, I don't know if it had anything connected to where he went to preschool in Tokyo, but um, I definitely talked about this stuff with him. And um, so, you know... <laughs> Him. It was just, just interesting, and so we had some really unique conversations uh, about the topic. But um, anyhow, uh, I think that um, nowadays these things can be um, 
better manipulated in, in labs and everything. And, and uh, as of 1969, officially, the American Bioweapons Research Program is of purely defensive purposes. <laughs> At least that was what I was told um, a long time ago with my Asahi Shimbun researcher when we went on our interviews way back when. So all this kind of goes full circle because it was interesting. I was very, very fascinated by this moment in, in history um, around uh, the mid-90s when much of this came to light in Japan, um, when um, the researchers began to tell their own testimonies, right? Um, Kuroda himself ended up uh, heading the Yamashina Ornithological Institute um, and um, worked as curator of, of birds for a while in Abiko. So um, he kind of pulled away from, you know, this, this earlier work during the war and the, the Cold War. Um, but um, it's 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 really fascinating, and kind of creepy, <laughs> you know, how this knowledge gets recirculated. Yeah, and I think it uh, you it, it it leads us nicely into the post-war uh, section, which is the final section of the book, in which you're talking uh, in chapters seven and eight about uh, what you, uh, with with admirable neutrality, refer to as. Uh, the revival of transnational connections enjoyed by Japanese scientists in the Anglo-American scientific world, uh, where uh, old connections were reactivated and ornithology was framed within a context of peaceful internationalism that echoed the 1920s. And so I think there's this, you know, you, you've, you've already talked a little bit about that. Um, I dragged you into that in the intro a little bit, but also you've, you've put this in the context of, uh, you know, thinking about the... Uh, the the personal relationships, uh, the empires, the sciences, um, and then there's also this, you know, very thinly veiled at best uh, sort of military applications and these questions about you know the the, the larger you know military industrial uh, uh, utility of various aspects of ornithology. Um, so actually, I'd love it if, uh, if in thinking about uh, first the chapter seven, Tokyo under the Allied occupation, and then chapter eight, Tokyo in the United States, 1940s to 1970s. Um, in, in thinking about these chapters, I'd love it if you could uh, talk about what were some of the factors that allowed this sort of restoration of the status quo ante so quickly and, and, and relatively, it seems seamlessly, um, to go back to that kind of 1920s uh, you know, bonhomie and camaraderie that seems to be enjoyed between these uh, elite scientists and, and aristocrats. Yeah, um, Yamashina Yoshimaro, who uh, was an imperial prince, obviously they lost their status in 1947 uh, when they, they had this kind of reordering, the, the aristocracy was declared obsolete uh, as part of democratization under the the occupation, but um, he became really important in publicizing the uh, activities of the Yamashina Ornithological Institute, uh, where I also um, was able to uh, meet and, and, and talk with uh, some of the scientists there. Um, and they continue to be kind of this elite global presence uh, in the world of, of ornithology. Uh, but Yamashina also was very, very important in kind of reaching out uh, to um, individuals with some clout in the scientific world. And um, he um, is able to effectuate this meeting in 1960 um, where um, you have all of these global authorities on bird conservation, right? It's no longer naming and claiming and, and killing 
um, that becomes a symbol of their activities, but rather uh, the coming together of um, a cosmopolitan cohort of global scientists. Um, and um, in 1960s, also very different than, uh, you know, 1950, 1953, you have the, the Korean War, which essentially helps to get the Japanese economy back on its feet. Yoshida Shigeru calls it the gift of the gods, right? American military procurements really boost the Japanese economy and usher in, have helped to usher in the Japanese economic miracle. Um, so Tokyo is also being showcased even before the Olympics in 1964 is um, kind of this reconstructed capital um, that, you know, has learned from its militaristic past and, and now is is becoming a setting for international in, encounters. And also International House becomes a site of, of some of these um, these interactions. And uh, it continues to be very, very important in international relations and and important individuals giving speeches and, and the like. Um, so, so yeah, um, it's um, really this important and unique rebranding as Japan re-enters the international stage um, instead of uh, birds being used in war. Um, but a lot of that stuff is arguably still going on, right? I mean, with... Um, the um, collection of, of blood samples from birds, right? Um, I mean, it didn't end until 1969, at least in the context of the United States and Japan. Obviously, um, you know, there's the Institute for Infectious Diseases. They're, they're focusing on global health. That is their focus. They're rebranding <laughs> and they become involved in kind of um, vaccinations and all sorts of things like that. Um, but instead of, uh, for national purposes, science is being mobilized for the greater international good uh, in a way where, I mean, what can Japan do? It can't do anything militarily because it's it's um, under the um, U.S.-Japan uh, Security Treaty as of 1951. Um, American military bases are on uh, Japan and, and later on became a staging area for uh, the U.S. Um, war in Vietnam. Um, and so the assertion of power in the world stage for the Japanese then becomes through these intellectual and cultural endeavors, the mobilization of Japanese culture as a, as a force in the world. And later on, it becomes a commercial force, arguably. That's kind of my latest book where I, I write about um, Japanese brands. <laughs> but um, so... Um, and, and, and also I think that, uh, the domestication of ornithology and making it more uh, accessible to, or democratization of ornithology to people in Japan itself. And, and, um, also, um, less elite members, even though you have princess Takamado being a spokesperson, especially for women to go out and be birders. Um, but the commercialization, I, I love the fact that you can go to Junkudo or other bookstores in Japan and that even um, there's a special store for um, ornithological accoutrements, including the coveted boots that you can purchase to outfit yourself properly. I mean, in, in Japan, you always have to be properly outfitted for whatever activity you're going to engage in. And you need to have those special gloves for uh, bird banding. Um, 
really, really interesting and um, a little notebook and um, something that's sort of like the life list that American birders have. And um, you always have to write down notes about your encounter with the bird. Uh, the Suntory Corporation also has this wonderful website about um, 100 birds that are commonly seen. And, and so commercial corporations right now are really fostering ornithology, including uh, supporting um, Yamashina Ornithological Institute. And uh, there's also a, a, a bird conservation habitat um, near one of the distilleries um, of, uh, of the Santori Corporation. And, and they, they really advertise it as thus, right? Um, even before the whole eco-sustainability narrative became, you know, a huge thing in the United States, um, the Japanese were al already using that as a, as a tool of um, commercializing their, their products <laughs> and um, including that, um, that message of, um, of conservation, um, that they corporate responsibility, we are also protecting birds. So um, I'm not sure if that really answers your question, but um, I, I think that... Um, yeah. Well, it did, yeah, it did. It did bridge over to, to one of the other. Uh, I mean, essentially, the last question I'd like to ask you about this um, this section, right? And, and this 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 uh, chapter uh, eight, especially, you know, throughout the book and throughout our conversation, uh, you've touched on the various members of not just the aristocracy, but sort of the inner circle of the imperial family itself, who have been involved in some way or another with birding and with ornithology, and how that's really been at the center of kind of Japanese cultures of power in a way. Uh, and it is something that you address here in the final chapter that members of the royal family uh, are, are have been in the post-war as well, uh, you know, deeply, heavily involved in uh, in ornithology, um, and and you just mentioned this a, a moment ago with the princess uh, as you know as, as the first sort of uh, woman protagonist that we've had in the whole thing, which is also sort of an interesting uh, change here. Um, but you know how did this this comes up um, here in the final chapter, and, and what does it what 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 is there to say about that? continued involvement, right? What does it say about sort of the, the state of where, where we are now? And of course, the book only goes into the 70s, and that's fine. But I wonder if you'd like to expand on that a little bit. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, uh, it's really interesting, right? Because I, I think in, in uh, Japan right now, um, there's a big attempt to kind of expand ornithology in particular to uh, women. And um, one of the most positive interactions I had with um, members of the ornithological, Yamashina Ornithological Institute was with Tsurumi Miyako, who is their natural history curator and um, really was extremely and immensely helpful and um, really interesting background because she has a original background in parasitology. Um, and so there's definitely a connection and, and, I, I neglected to say this in um, in my discussion of the zoology chapter, but um, zoology, interest in zoology in Japan was also deeply connected with parasitology because in order to understand tech, taxonomies, birds um, have certain parasites, right? The same species would have the same parasites. So that's how you could tell them apart. And so um, for systematists, which most of them were at that time, um, 
this enabled a tool for their recognition because now we have um, genetical analysis. They didn't have that back then. Uh, but cytology becomes important for Yamashino Yoshimoto, who is um, the head of the Institute um, in the post-war period. Um, and then this gives a very much a much more precise way of determining lineage. And so there's still that element of of, of um, that aristocratic obsession with with lineage and and so on, um, but the democratization of ornithology um, it's something that I was also very aware of in the United States. Um, I mentioned uh, Professor Scott Edwards' journey across the United States from Massachusetts all the way to uh, the West Coast on his bicycle, um, and. He's uh, unique and is an ornithologist uh, because he's African American, and mostly it would be performed by white men in the United States. And um, he also um, is um, the head curator of ornithology at um, the Harvard Museum of Comparative Museum of Zoology. Um, and interestingly, he also, I, I asked him about this, um, during an alumni, he gave a speech during, um, Harvard alumni day. And I asked him, you know, do you really go out and, and shoot the specimens? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> it's really sheepish to, um, you know, bring up that image. Um, but then, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting. We always think of white men in pith helmets going on exploration because this is like the, the kind of late 19th century imperial idea, right, that, you know, you have of the expedition. But uh, Dr. Edwards and his graduate students, um, they were um, in Peru collecting specimens. And, and of course, they had gotten the requisite permits and everything to, um, to hunt the birds that um, they, were, they were harvesting, right, for their, their collections and for research purposes and the like. Um, but, um, and, and in the United States as well, there's a growing number of black ornithologists, a very, very important and significant development um, because there's not that in the sciences in general, right? I mean, um, the growth of women in the science, in the sciences itself is, is a, a very recent phenomenon and even more so people of color in science. Uh, but arguably, these Japanese were people of color on the world stage uh, from the 19th century onwards. And that was because of their embedding and insertion in these Anglo-American scholarly networks um, and being able to foster these close relationships with elites from those countries um, because of this common interest. And for me, that was just really important. And, um, you know, during the, the pandemic where we had the Black Lives Matter movement and other forms of reckonings about um, about race that led many to reflect upon past histories in the United States um, and even even globally, right? I think reflections on, on history were sparked by that just to um, kind of renew ongoing conversations about race and ethnicity. I think that were very, very important and needed to be needed to be had during this moment of of um, of of just stopping from, you know, the ordinary work that everyone was was doing. So um, for me, it was uh, a really interesting time to be writing this this book um, and and also really kind of inspiring to um, read about these individuals. Yeah, and I think that's an, uh, it nicely takes us full circle thinking about the sort of uh, tensions between uh, the aristocratic nature of birding and science on the one hand and its dem democratization in the long term. Um, the 
violence, the militarism, the secret germ warfare, the spying on the one hand, and the elegance, the beauty, uh, the friendships, the personal relationships on the other hand. And I think these are some of the tensions that kind of animate the book throughout. So I'm glad we uh, got back around to that at the end. Um, And I do want to end on that note. uh, But before we go, I do want to ask you, is there anything that you're uh, working on now, either uh, as an extension of this project, or uh, are you on to something new uh, that we can expect to see from you in the near future? Um, I, um, in the midst of uh, having my book, Democratizing Luxury, copy edited, and it's um, 150 year history of Japanese name brands advertising and consumption. And that was a really fun book to read. And um, lots of side effects involved me making all kinds of purchases. (laughs) For science, for science. I'm I'm all about experiential uh, anthropology. and, And I have to become a consumer myself to really understand consumption, right? So uh, that was part of it. And uh, a a new project involves, um, I was given exclusive access to the archive of Hachiska Masauji by his daughter. And so I was able to go through his archive, which was just absolutely remarkable. And um, it led me to be very, very interested in writing um, kind of a transnational history of um, this family, right, of uh, Hachiska and his his daughter, uh, whose lives were really bifurcated, in particular his daughter, um, a bifurcated life uh, between the United States and uh, Japan um, as a member of an aristocratic elite on one hand, but then in the United States being able to have um, this separation from the duty, from um, all of the obligations of this position as literally being the last one of her lineage. And uh, the theme of the dodo really, um, I think, resonates because one of the last um, scholarly pieces written by Pachiska Masauji was um, this treatise on the dodo. And allegedly, a dodo came into the possession of... Um, the one of um, the daimyo near their domain um, and perhaps into the hands of Masauji, even though this is like a really big mystery. Um, the dodo skeleton may be in the Yarmouthina Ornithological Institute, but even the top renowned dodo scientists do not know. Um, and so um, apparently one of these dodo scientists contacted uh, Hachiska's daughter and Um, She contacted me because there were very, very late photographs of her father in the Austin collection. He he died in 1953 suddenly from either a stroke or a heart attack. And uh, so these pictures from 1950, even she does not have these late pictures in her possession. And so she wanted to provide a picture for one of these dodo researchers for a new study of the dodo, right? Um, and so I came into contact with her and we began to interact and, and, um, I was so grateful for her to, it's, it's kind of a project that I I really can't unveil much about, uh, because it's still, uh, in the beginnings of, um, the research stage and, and, 
Um, eventually, um, she has expressed an interest in finding a home for the archive where it can be properly preserved um, and made accessible to, um, because it's, it's important for Asian American relations, U.S.-Japan relations, um, and also from, you know, her mother's side of the family, right, from a, a wealthy um, developer um, involved in the fruit business in Los Angeles, uh, and who was also interned and who very well may have been an intelligence agent, according to family lore, um, and also had been part of the, the Konoe Imperial Guard in the early 20th century before he went to the Philippines and um, then came to the United States uh, in the teens. And so a lot of really fascinating things about um, her grandfather's background, which I'd like to put in the book as well. And then, of course, her mother is fascinating, too, because she um, crossed paths with uh, with um, Sung Mei Ling um, in the context of um, a prep school for Wellesley. And um, she was actually also a fascinating character. And Mike Mansfield also plays a role because um, Hachiska's daughter's mother uh, operated in those same circles as the U.S.-Japan elites and the parties that they went to. And Mike Mansfield may have been one of the individuals uh, who was involved in the board uh, that listened to the testimonies of these internees during World War II, which he said in a testimony that he doesn't remember, but we are not exactly sure if that's just to kind of deflect from his later important role in fostering U.S.-Japan relations, right? So, um, but interesting reconnections and crossings of individuals that, um, just like in the book that I wrote, um, they later reappear. I mean, it's fascinating, right? It's almost like Freud's return of the repressed, that it just always comes back to a full circle. Yeah, well, thank you uh, for being generous with your time today, and I will definitely be looking forward to uh, both of both the book Democratizing Luxury when it comes out and to uh, hearing more about uh, your continuing archival work. Uh, but for now, uh, thank you and uh, take care. All right. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed, uh, enjoyed talking with you. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.